0: I do want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah 5. We'll be looking at the first six verses in the Blue Pew Bible. You can find that, I believe, on 779. Our sermon title this morning is, He Shall Be Their Peace. And the key words for our worshipers in training are, Fight Peace. And shepherd. As we continue in our series through the book of Micah, we find ourselves, you'll recall, in the middle of a second cycle of sermons that he preached to the nations of Israel and Judah uh, over 700 years before the birth of Christ. And the first three chapters of the book deal largely with a proclamation of coming judgment against God's people. And this judgment was to take the forms of invasion, captivity, and servitude. They would be uh, either destroyed or enslaved by the Assyrian and Babylonian armies in but a few years from Micah's present day, probably 740 B.C. As we look at our text today of chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, I want to... Uh, read Micah 4, 9 through 5, 6. And I want to revisit for a moment what we said last week about the flow of these two chapters because we need to, to get a sense. They're very closely tied together. So let's read Micah 4, 9 through 5, 6 and then we'll get into it. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the the thoughts of the Lord." They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall Shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Last week, we mentioned briefly that in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, and verses 11 through 13, and then in verses 5, 1 through 6, there are... Uh, three prophecies of a future uh, deliverance in the face of current and severe circumstances for the nation of Israel. Um, we we see this because there are several grammatical ties that bind these three prophecies together. Each one beginning four nine four eleven and five one. And they bind these grammatical ties, bind these prophecies together as a unified whole, and they serve to fill out in greater detail the promises made in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. And so, 9 and 10, the first two prophecies, 9 and 10 and 11 through 13, they're nearly identical in form, and so clearly connected. Our passage today in 5, 1 through 6, is. Is certainly connected with these prophecies, but it does contain some differences, some significant differences from the other two, and it, it is set apart. And I think this is done by Micah for a very specific reason, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, real quickly, here's what links these uh, these several verses together from four nine to five six. In verses nine to ten, and eleven through thirteen of chapter four, we see four things. We see the word now at the beginning of each prophecy. We see a description, second, of Israel's current distress in each prophecy. In the first one, why do you cry aloud? the second one, many nations are now assembled against you. And then there is an address to the daughter of Zion with two imperatives. In the first, they are to writhe and groan. In the second, they are to arise and thresh. And then fourth, each prophecy contains a promise of salvation. There you shall be rescued. In the first, you shall beat many peoples gathered against you into dust. In the second, so that's the first two. In the in the in the third verses, five, chapter five, verses one to six, we see the same four things, but they're changed slightly. Verse one also begins with the word now, so that's the same. There's also a current situation of, dis- of distress described. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel. And here's where things begin to change. The third, that though it's not addressed to the daughter of Zion, it is still addressed to the daughter of troops. And so there still is a, a, an address made with this daughter language. But it is changed from daughter of Zion to daughter of troops. And there's also a command given, but it's just one, muster the troops. Lastly, and perhaps most significantly, while there is a promise of salvation given, it is by far much, much longer in this passage than it is in the others. There is a significant amount of detail and attention given to this coming salvation, as opposed to It's sort of simply being stated in the first two prophecies. So what's with the differences? I believe that although the structure of this prophecy is very similar and links it with the previous two, it is varied slightly to draw attention to it. Micah intended, it seems, that this passage would be viewed as that which holds the previous prophecies together. Here's what I mean. In chapter 4, verse 1, Micah begins unfolding this message of hope for a glorious future for the people of God. Which he says would not simply include physical Israel anymore, but people from all over the earth. He says all of this would come about in latter days, in days yet to come, in verse 1. Which We've said in the previous weeks, and we'll see really definitively today, this happens, this um, is inaugurated in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit, He commenced His reign on earth and brought about in partial fulfillment the hopes of these Old Testament prophecies. That means that we, as part of the New Testament church, enjoy the words of Micah 4 and 5. Now, partially. And we await an eager expectation. We await with eager expectation a day when we will reign with the Lord fully. When He will return and bring in the fullness of His kingdom and His work. And he will establish the full enjoyment of these promises for his people. So, chapter 4 begins with this call to Israel to look and long for that day. But in 4 9, Micah calls his audience to attention to the present day with the word now. He says, This is what it will be like then, but now you are in tears. Now, You struggle with your faith in God. Now you are on the verge of exile. In verse 11, now the international horde of mercenaries that made up the Assyrian army is gathered at the very gate of your city. In chapter 5, he says, now siege is laid against us. And they strike our leaders. But these these situations of distress, even now, aren't hopeless. He says, muster your troops and your strength and your courage and fight. Because God is going to give you a ruler to establish true peace in your midst. There's a day coming, says Micah, but now, 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 there is strife and turmoil and you must struggle through it until the day comes when Yahweh will provide you with a Savior to deliver you from the threat of the enemy. And so this, these prophecies back to back to back with the focus on the now and what is to come come to a, a climax, if you will, in chapter 5. There's promises of deliverance from Babylon and from Assyria in chapter 4, but they find their ultimate fulfillment in the promise of a Messiah in chapter 5. Like I said, if, if, if chapter 4 begins to play a song of redemption, chapter 5 brings the song to its Climax. That intro was tedious, I apologize, but I I hope it's helpful for understanding the significance of what we'll see here, and as we look at these verses, it may become even clearer. So we're in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and we'll look at these verses under three headings. In verse 1, we'll see that the promises of God enliven the church to withstand those who oppose it. Second, in verses 2 through the first part of verse 5, we'll see that the promises of God establish peace for God's church. And third, in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, we'll see that the promises of God empower faithful men to lead His church. So first, in verse 1, even in the face of overpowering, overpowering forces, God calls and equips and enlivens His people for purposeful activity rather than passive inactivity. The promises of God give life to the people of God to fight against the enemy. While we must abhor and detest every form of doctrine that would set any of our works up as the basis of our justification, our right standing with God, we must equally reject any notion that would permit passivity, fatalism, or laziness in the Christian life. Consider the situation here in Micah's day. God has just twice promised deliverance for His people. And in these promises, now in the third especially, it's, He uses language that makes it plain that God's people themselves in at least some respect were to be the instruments that He would use in their victory over their enemies. Despite God's promises of deliverance, or perhaps because of them, He still called them to action in the face of tremendous threat. And this is not done aimlessly. He does it because He aims for them to fight and He to fight through them. The promises of God don't remove our obligation to work, to strive, or to fight. But they enliven us for faithful obedience to the strife, work, and fighting to which we are, in fact, called. For example, in First Samuel 17, we read of Israel's conflict with the Philistines. and When they decided to have two champions fight, One against another to decide the ultimate outcome of the the national conflict. When they decided to do this, the Philistines set forth the giant Goliath. He was their warrior, their champion. Goliath then stepped forward and called out. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when all the men of Israel heard these words and they saw him, They fled and were dismayed and much afraid. All except one. A young shepherd boy, the youngest of eight brothers, had been going back and forth between the army and his home in order to feed the sheep and to bring his eldest brothers and the rest of the army food. And these trips continued for over a month. For over a month, Goliath defied the armies of the living God. Eventually, the young man tires of listening to the uncircumcised Philistine defy God himself. And so despite the protest of his brothers, he walks out to do battle with the giant. And listen to what he says. He says, You come to me with a sword and a spear, with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give your dead bodies to the host of the Philistines this of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. And He will give you into our hand. He then kills the giant with one sling to the forehead and prevails over the Philistines that day. So what's the point? Well, ultimately the point of that passage is that there's a God in Israel and He will not be trifled with. The battle is the Lord's and He will and has delivered His people from the great defier of the Lord of hosts. It's not about conquering the giants in your life. It is primarily about what God did to preserve His people in the face of threats. And it's about the greater David who conquered the greater Goliath. Not with a sling, but with a cross. But I do think that David's faith in the Lord to deliver him in this moment... And the action that his faith produced, they're not insignificant. Israel's lack of faith led them to inaction. David's faith propelled him to work. And so it should be with us. And so, despite the threat of the invading army in Micah, God called His people to action and He calls us to action. Brothers and sisters, what about you? Have you been lulled to inactivity in the fight of faith? Have you grown lethargic along the pilgrim's path? Your commander calls you and equips you to fight, to strive, and He will provide the victory. We can fight with all assurance against sin and all that is evil in us. We can fight with all assurance that God fights for us and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We'll turn with me secondly then to two and verses 2-5. through five. And we'll see that true and lasting peace comes to God's people through the fulfillment of His promises. The resulting peace of verse 5 comes through the fulfillment of the establishment of the person and the work of God. Messiah, in verses 2-4. to four. So we'll look at each of those. The establishment of His person and of His work. First, who is it that brings about peace for the people of God? In verse 2, we see four things about His identity. First, His birthplace. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. This signifies that God's promise to David, David, the one we just Read about in 1 Samuel, he, king of Israel, was from Bethlehem. The shepherd boy who slayed Goliath was to become king, and he, like Messiah, would be from Bethlehem. God had promised David that a line, his line, his royal line, one from his line would arise and sit on his throne forever. David's kingship paved the way for the time of peace and prosperity into which Israel entered under the reign of his son Solomon. And so the promise being made here in Micah 5 is that there is a second David who would arise, who would usher his people into untold eternal peace and prosperity. Well, A second thing His birthplace Bethlehem also tells us is that God will continue to work through unexpected means. We're told that Bethlehem was too little to be named among the clans of Judah. God doesn't go for the high and the lofty, but the humble and lowly. The ruler would come from Bethlehem or that the ruler would come from Bethlehem is nothing but a testimony to the sheer might of and majesty of God as He brings about the redemption of the world through such a nothing town. We looked at several reversals last week. This could fit right in there as well. The Savior of the world is born in nothing town Bethlehem. It tells us that God humbles the proud and exalts the lowly. Consider the way that Matthew, though, interprets this verse speaking of reversals. Matthew in his gospel through the mouth of unbelieving scribes answering to King Herod in search of the Messiah. He writes this, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. What a turn. Through the dawning of salvation, through the incarnation of the Son of God, Bethlehem moves out of the obscurity of shadows into full light. A third aspect of Messiah's identity is that he should come forth for Yahweh to be a ruler in Israel. And this effectively serves to reverse again the political and pastoral leadership problems that Jerusalem had been facing. Remember, in chapters 2 to 3, we saw a detailed look at the secular and spiritual corruption that plagued the leaders of Israel, which we're told is the very reason for the impending judgment of chapters 1 through 3. But here in chapter 5, God promises to provide his people a leader and ruler who would not rule merely for himself, but should rule for the Lord. Jesus says in John 5, I have not come to do My will, but the will of Him who sent Me. Christ came on a mission not to be served, but to serve and to give Himself as a ransom for many. A fourth and final quality of Messiah is that though His earthly origins would be of low estate, His essence His coming forth is from days of old, from ancient days. He would not be merely a man, but He would be the God-man who would come to reign over and through His people forever. This is how it is in chapter 4, verses 3-8 to that we saw that the Lord Himself, Yahweh, would be the one to judge between many peoples and reign over them forever. Because this one from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who shall rule for God is God. So that is the identity of Messiah. Striking accuracy for this prophecy made over 700 years before the birth of Christ. It's His person. What about His work and His calling? First, notice the timing of His calling. In verse 3, we read that the timing of this shall come about when she who is in labor gives birth. This is now the third time in these two chapters that we've seen labor pains. Why are you groaning as a woman in labor? In 4.10. Go ahead, groan as a woman in labor. Or 4.9 and 4.10. He says, for through it, you shall be saved. 5.3 Your deliverance shall be realized in the birth of this ruler, of Messiah, who shall come forth, O Israel, from your womb, as it were. Micah uses their present distress. Enemy at the gates. And he uses this promise of ultimate deliverance to propel the people of God to trust in the Lord who rules over time and history. For as we've said, it is 700 years before this promise is fulfilled for them. One commentator writes, "...with Him in whose hands are the times of all people, a thousand years is as one day. And before the remnant gave birth to the Messiah, it had first to endure seven centuries under the continued sway of Assyria, and then Babylon, Persia, Greece." And Rome, respectively. But the prophet uses language appropriate to his own day and so refers only to the Assyrians, as we'll see clearly in verses 5 and 6. This way of speaking aimed to keep Israel vigilant. And so they waited until one day, as prophesied here and elsewhere, like the prophet Isaiah, who said the virgin was with child, and then this child. This descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, born of woman, born under the law, lived a perfect life under the law so that he could offer himself a spotless sacrifice. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and three days he rose again. And he offers himself to us once more this morning. Will you take him, believer, again? And if you do not know Christ, I pray that you would entrust yourself to Him. But this leads us to a second consideration of Messiah's work and calling. Not just the timing of it, but what does He do? And we read two things in verses 3-4 to describing His work. He would bring about the restoration of His brothers from their scattering. And He would stand and shepherd the people of God in the strength of the Lord and He would bring them peace. When are the brothers brought back in? In short, under the new covenant. When Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down on the throne of God, which is symbolized by David's throne on earth. From there, He sent down His Spirit at Pentecost and began to bring in the brothers. There was 120 gathered on that day. And He added 3,000 like that. And then day by day, ever since, God has been bringing the brothers together, adding to His church all who are being saved. And He will stand and He will shepherd them. He will guard and protect them from outside invaders such that they will, in the end, it says, they will dwell secure. He will be great to the ends of the earth. Not just in Judah, but to the ends of the earth He will keep His people safe. He will be their peace. He will give them peace within and peace without because He will be with them. God's people have peace with man, peace with God. The shepherd ruler of God's people brings the brothers peace from God and peace from one another. He brings them together and establishes Peace! I spent some time this week praying with another pastor in the area and I was reminded of a text. Psalm 133. How good it is when brothers dwell in unity. Brothers and sisters, I'm grateful for the unity that we have. That we have together as the family of God here at Redeemer Baptist Church. I pray that you would daily thank God for it and that we can strive together evermore for sustained peace and harmony. In the Gospel, we're granted peace with God and peace with each other. Let's live in it with our amongst ourselves and with others in churches that perhaps there are differences among us, but what unites us, Christ, in so many cases is far, far greater than what divides us. So God brings peace to His church. Lastly, verses 5-6, to the promises of God empower faithful men to lead His church. Uh, A moment ago I mentioned that despite the far-off glance of much of the fulfillment of these prophecies, um, Micah still uses language in these prophecies that's appropriate for his day and would be easily understood by his hearers. And so in 5 and 6, we we get several references to Assyria. Assyria, in many respects, is simply a stand-in here for all who exist in opposition to God and to His people. Assyria was the present threat against Israel. Soon Babylon would be their threat. After them, the Medes and Persians and then Greece and then Rome. Just taking us through the 5th century A.D. But the church in every age has had those who seek to oppress it, who seek to oppose it. Those who seek to encroach, as it were, in As we read in verse 5, they encroach upon our territory, whether it's physical or spiritual. But we see here in these two verses at the end of this section that in light of the promises of God to His church brought about in the fullness of time through the birth of Messiah, His Word would come to power and it would strengthen the great shepherds under shepherds. Micah says that they would, in response to encroaching invaders, raise up seven shepherds, eight princes of men, to rid themselves of the oppressors from Assyria and Nimrod, the land of Babylon. That language, seven shepherds, eight princes, it conveys a sense of perfection, more than enough, seven Biblically speaking, right? is often understood to convey a sense of completion and perfection. And so when they say seven shepherds, eight princes, we are fully equipped, in other words, to deal with the invaders as they come. It has been said that pastors need two voices. One for the sheep. One for the wolves. The pastor with his sheep He longs to be gentle, peaceable, and kind. There are at times necessities for stern words or actions perhaps with the sheep. But all is done in love and for the good of the sheep. Wolves are another matter. The wolf is dangerous to the entire flock. And so the faithful pastor must be a ferocious adversary to any who would come to harm his sheep. Redeemer Baptist Church, your pastors love you. We rejoice when you rejoice. We weep when you weep. We exult over you in triumphs and we ache over you in defeats. We cry for you. We die for you. We die a thousand deaths for you. You are our crown and joy. We take the responsibility and the honor for every one of you very seriously to protect you from the wolves who would devour you. And we seek to come alongside you to strengthen you, to equip you to fight the good fight. And so would you know that, first of all, and secondly, would you pray for us? Pray that we would cling evermore to the promises of God that we might be filled each and every day with as full a measure of the Spirit as possible to continue to lead this church faithfully. Because when we rely on our own skill, our own wisdom, our own power, we fall flat on our faces and we put You in harm's way. Forgive us for our shortcomings. Pray for strength and endurance and know that You are loved, prayed for, cared for. We pray for you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. you, Every one of you. You are written on our hearts. So take heart, Redeemer Baptist Church. Many enemies may conspire against us, but there is one who is for us who is greater than all. He has ensured victory for us. And He strengthens us. He strengthens you to fight on. Through His sovereign decree, He has established peace between us. Between us and between Him. And we pray that we continue to empower Faithful shepherds to lead you in humility and in the Spirit. Feeding you spiritual nourishment and protecting you from the One who would do you any harm. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe in Jesus Christ. He loved us. He sought us. He bought us. And He rules and reigns over us and in us and through us now. I pray you would take this Word through faltering lips and proclaim it with power, O God, to our hearts. This great... Great promise of a Savior, of a Messiah, a Redeemer, a ruler who would come forth. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Rule in our hearts now, from now on, unto eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.